This 15 years of collaboration between CBAM and WPP has not only led to foresight in the topics the CBAM Advisory Board of Academics and Industry Leaders has chosen for discussion, but real knowledge interchange too. Those impressive GDP figures unveiled by China on the eve of the conference China and the Rise of the BRICS of just over 10% growth in 2010 needed a deeper analysis. It came in the shape of Jonathan Garner, Chief Emerging Market Equity Strategist, Morgan Stanley, Hong Kong. This is the third and fastest transition in world manufacturing output since 1750, or put it another way, the world's third industrial revolution, Garner. Well, in the middle of the 18th century, uh, China and the other emerging uh, economies were the global economy. They were about 75% of the global economy. And then through various turbulent episodes in in history, um, particularly the era of of colonialism and then the world wars, we transited to a period of first European leadership and then US leadership. But now we're going back full circle. And in the last 20 years, the regain in share that Asia and EM have had relative to US, Europe and Japan is uh, the fastest transformation of the structure of the global economy um, of the last 250 years. Uh, So it's a dramatic um, structural shift that's occurring over a very short period of time. And by the time that it's finished, we will probably have gone full circle. And China, Asia and the other emerging markets will again, um, within the next 15 to 20 years, be 75 percent or so of the global economy. And that's inevitable, you think? There's nothing that's going to stop the, the march of the dragon? It is pretty inevitable. Um, It all stems uh, from adopting the market economy, pricing, labour, capital and the other factors of production in a more rational way than was done under the uh, the former economic dispensation in all four of the BRICS. If China's growing middle class consumers are the markets to tap into in the future, the challenges and opportunities elsewhere in the BRICS need careful consideration too. Brazil's record of steady growth may not rival that of the tiger economies of China and India, but it impresses some for that steadiness of its climb up the world rankings. Garner again. I'm certainly known for being bullish on China as well. Um, I was (laughs) just pointing out that in terms of, for example, formal sector employment growth and actually the sort of the wider context of growth, dealing with um, income and wealth inequality, dealing with some of the environmental consequences of growth, I would actually rate Brazil uh, higher uh, amongst the BRICS than than, than, uh, countries like China or indeed uh, Russia. Um, I think the China story is likely to continue and China is so much larger than the other BRICS that the size of the urban middle class there Uh, will alone, uh, within the next couple of years, be larger than that of the United States, and it will go on to dominate the global economy. So in that sense, China is by far the more important story. And do you have views on India? I think India's development path is far less certain. The urban middle class is narrower. It's not developing in the manufacturing side of the economy for a number of reasons. I mean, I think the government's ability to put in high-quality infrastructure is far more limited than in China's case. So in, in roads, in rail, in water, sewerage, in power generation and transmission, it lacks, lags China significantly. And unless you put that basic infrastructure in, you can't have the distribution networks that you need to have a modern consumer society. And so the consumer brands we're talking about evolving in China they can evolve in that environment far more easily than in the case of somewhere like India. The growth of patenting by China and India is often seen as a signal of national competitiveness.
So who patents what where and what can we learn from analysis of this important data? Professor Suma Athri, Director, Centre for International Business and Strategy in Emerging Markets, Brunel Business School. There's a reason that there is such a, a vast amount of uh, R&D offshoring happening to India and China, and this is to do, in my opinion, with the uh, demographic uh, change that has happened in Western Europe, where there's an aging population, whereas in India particularly, there's a very young population, which is more technologically malleable. So the aim of our research was to look at uh, whether uh, India and China are uh, becoming hotspots for patenting by domestic firms or foreign firms, and uh, did the quantity match up with the quality of patenting? Well, can I ask you, did the quantity match up with the quality? Who's best on quantity? Who's best on quality? No, if you look at the quantity, then China has vastly more patents than, uh, many more patents than India. Uh, but if you look at who owns those patents, you find that in China it's uh, sort of evenly distributed with, between domestic and foreign firms. India has fewer patents than China, but uh, Indian patents appear to be more highly and more high quality in this sense that they get more forward citations. So when you patent, then other patents use your patent. And the number of people who do that is sometimes seen as an index of the patent's value. So one thing we found quite consistently, which we can't explain because we don't know why this happens exactly, um, we found that Indian patents receive more citations than do Chinese patents. So their quality is measured by the number of citations seems to be higher for Indian patents. And also there's a difference in the type of organization that patents. In India, it's uh, public sector labs and foreign firms that are driving a lot of the patenting. And in China, it would be the, the, domestic. the domestic brand brands. Well, yes, domestic firms are probably using this technology as a basis for branding because a lot of Chinese patents are also design patents, so they go with uh, product designs. India takes out fewer patents than China, but they are of a higher quality, and both nations have grown very different industries and needs. Pharmaceuticals, IT and telecoms dominate in India, while China's economy hinges on electronic goods and manufacturing. Athri again. And if we look, if you like, at Professor Peter Williamson's fascination, really, with how quickly China can get a brand, how quickly it can innovate, its engineers, its bringing things to the market so much quicker than America or other Western uh, economies. Do you think the patenting processing is key in that, in terms of putting in your patent early and, and then working on it? No, I don't think patenting is so necessary for the kind of innovations that uh, Peter talked about in the seminar. Uh, however, pating, patenting just uh, does show a sort of uh, sensitivity to the issue of technological ownership, which is key to higher value-added uh, activities, whether it be in production or it be to do with the quality of goods. So certainly the fact that Chinese firms so, show so many design patents associated with their utility patents shows that they are thinking about the products and the markets that they're going to target with these patents. Wasn't the old view of China that it copied the products of the West and then sort of sold them almost, if you like, as counterfeit products? Are we getting over that? And if you like, moving to a new decade, not just in terms of China overtaking Japan or China overtaking America as the number one economy, but but in terms of, of the kudos of owning a Chinese brand too? 
Yeah, uh, I think this idea, that it's, first of all, patents are granted for novelty. So if someone was doing something you already did, you wouldn't be given a patent. And we're looking at USPTO patents, which are which scrutinize this quite effectively. Uh, so what we find is that there is certainly a large number of backward citations in Chinese patents, which suggest that these patents are more incremental in nature. So they are not, you know, radically new technologies, but they build incrementally on existing technologies. But to the extent that a patent is granted, it it is for a novel uh, extension. It is not. Uh, it's not an imitation. So certainly not counterfeiting. And if you're looking to the future, does your research on patents give us an indication of who's going to win this race, you know, China, India, or, or, or perhaps that's not what it's meant to do? Yeah, I don't think it's, uh, uh, it's, it's really uh, going to... What it tells us is that China and India are in pretty different technological areas. So uh, the foreign firms that locate in India are not likely to be the ones that will locate in China. By and large, Indian uh, the, 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 the patenting in India is in organic chemistry, which is to do with generic drugs. Um, it is in the pharmaceutical and cosmetic sector, in IT and in telecom, and in China it's largely in electrical machinery, the sort of examples Peter gave, you know, with fridges and so on. Uh, it is in the area of consumer goods, uh, and it is in the area of... Uh, uh, there is some overlap in the area of IT, so uh, the technological areas seem to be quite different. So I don't think that this is a race in a traditional sense. But yes, I mean, there's a race for the labor force because foreign firms are exploiting uh, both countries' labor forces. Uh, and uh, how that pans out is, is kind of difficult to know. But what our research shows very clearly is that uh, the, the, the way forward to using these scientists and engineers for a global company is through having international teams of inventors rather than, you know, saying that my Indian subsidiary will do this or my Chinese subsidiary will do that. Digging down deeper into the strengths of Brazil's economy, there are divergent views on whether it can ever rival that of China or India. Is Brazil's current growth acceleration the world's most overrated boom, a mere bubble in world history? Dr Gabriel Palmer, University Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Economics, University of Cambridge. My, my guess is that Brazil is in a different league altogether than China, India, Vietnam, Korea, Malaysia, or Thailand. If you look ahead, Brazil, the Brazilian economy, basically, on the positive side, it has no major roadblocks, no major obstacles. There is no time bomb that you could see within the economy in terms of the banking system is relatively sound, the public finance are relatively sound, the balance of payment, although it's getting worse, is still quite sustainable, meaning Brazil is a country that it's going to continue doing very much what has been doing so far, except that it's very unlikely that it will accelerate its rate of growth in any sustainable way, like they have done in China and India and Vietnam and other parts of Asia. But you have, if you like, democratised your middle class. You've addressed the problem of poverty, which China and India haven't done yet. Over 50% are now middle class in Brazil, they say. So, so if you like, it's been a steady growth, not a phenomenal growth, but a steady growth. Might that steadiness not challenge the other emerging tiger economies? Well, in terms of poverty, it's true that finally 
in the last 10 years, particularly during the eight years of Lula, the President Lula, they tried to do something about poverty. Mainly, uh, they created a subsidy, which is roughly $50 a month that they give to more or less 11 million families under certain circumstances, which had brought quite a lot of people out of poverty. But still, poverty in Brazil is very large. I mean, at least something like 20% of the population live below poverty line. And you have to distinguish a middle-income country with those levels of poverty and a low-income country or middle-low-income country like China and India. I mean, one thing is to have those levels of poverty when your GDP per capita is five, six thousand dollars Another thing is to have those levels of poverty when your GDP per capita is one or two thousand dollars Meaning in Brazil, Basically, with no more than an extra 2% of GDP expenditure in the public sector, you could eradicate poverty altogether. Meaning, in a middle-income country, eradicate poverty is a, very, is a relatively easy and cheap job to do, which makes it even more difficult to understand why they do so little about it. But in the last 10 years, at least... Some countries like Brazil and Chile have tried to address that, but still in Brazil today something like 20% of the population lives below poverty line. But if you like that growth in the middle classes, they will be markets that you can cater to internally, that, that other people can cater to. Isn't that likely to bring people out of poverty? Well, the thing is that uh, what it can do, and it certainly has done, is to generate jobs quite significantly. For example, Brazil in the last 30 years has created 30 million jobs. The key problem is that 28 of those 30 have been in services, which is mostly precarious job, low productivity, low wage, meaning it's not something that will be an engine of growth, but at least has helped to bring people out of poverty into works and often into formal jobs as opposed to the informal sector. Brazil will grow at a steady rate of 3 to 4% a year, comparing well with Europe, Japan and the US. But it won't rival the double-digit growth of India or China, says Dr. Palmer. No, neither on the positive side any ambitions to do any better, nor on the negative side any roadblocks or any time bomb that are there, obviously, to stop that. So neither on the positive optimistic or the, or the ambitious side, neither on the negative uh, time bomb side. So That sounds like quite a rosy analysis to me. Well, not if you come from India, China, Vietnam, or Korea, or Malaysia, Thailand, countries that are going to grow twice as fast than Brazil. But compared to Europe, Japan, or the US, and the rest of Latin America, yes, it's, it's quite positive. But for some, that steady growth in Brazil, a country that is tackling its social problems too and has worked to lift its population out of poverty and into the growing ranks of that 50% who are now regarded as middle class, is not a bad bet. It's also rich in natural resources. It could just be a matter of asking, is the glass half full or half empty? Christiane Pearson of WPP Millwood Brown Optima, 
the global brand strategy and financial consultancy. What a lot of people don't know about Brazil is, you know, we hear about Petrobras and we hear about all these big um, companies, but actually the government is making some fundamental changes in the Brazilian society, particularly in terms of infrastructure and more so education. And um, I think our education levels compared to a lot of the, the developing markets is way above the average, which is something that's very new to us um, in terms of literacy and also you know, people who graduate from, from high school and university. So I think we're going to have a much more educated population in the next 20 years. And you know, as Eduardo said, incomes are rising. So I think that it's really only blue skies. Those growing assets of the middle classes in Brazil wins the approval, too, of Eduardo Tomia, Managing Director of Brand Analytics, Optimus' strategic partner in Brazil. Brazil has a great perspective in terms of the long term, in terms of the assets of the middle, the middle class, the poor people to, 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 to our upper class. And we, uh, the, the, our salaries, the, the, the forecast of the salary of the people is, is increasing a lot. A lot of Brazilian companies are, are really become multinational. And so the perspectives are very positive in this way. For example, the aircraft industry. We have Embraer. Embraer is an is a, is a aircraft, uh, aircraft company that provides uh, aircraft for the whole world. And they, they compete against Bombardier. And they have a very important R&D uh, uh, industry. But uh, uh, we cannot compare to China and to India. But we, we, what I think that makes some difference to Brazil is first the, 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 ten, the trend for the, the, the domestic market and also the new events, for example, the Olympic Games, the, 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 the World Cup, we will, have, we will be placed in Brazil. And so there will be a lot of investment in infrastructure, a lot of things that I think that can be, can be a little bit different than China and then, than India. The 15th CBAM WPP conference, distinguished lecture and panel, China and the Rise of the BRICS at Cambridge Judge Business School, looked at the potential of business investment in the Russian economy, where stocks are now the world's cheapest. Russia's reputation for state meddling and interference may be putting some investors off, but others may want to take advantage of these low stock prices. Mr. Kirill Slavin, Director Slavin and Associates. Stocks are low in general, but um, some are lower than the others. And um, the lowest are those with um, state ownership and with state meddling. So that, that, that's basically the answer. And, and in terms of the state, why does it meddle? Is it history? Is it that it can't let go? That it doesn't know how to let go? That it doesn't have a culture of not meddling? Well, it, it's a bit of all. Um, they uh, meddle because uh, it's um, uh, quite traditional. B, they meddle because they want to do some favours for their chums. And um, thirdly, they meddle just because of incompetence. So is it risky to invest in the Russian stocks then? You, you talk about a damning verdict on kleptocracy. What does that mean? Well, the damning verdict on kleptocracy is um, the thing that relates to the sectors that are perceived as strategic by the government. 
um, other sectors are they 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 are not terribly influenced by the government, so it's relatively safe to invest in there, as uh, the latest investments by PepsiCo illustrates. The recent acquisition of Russia's Wimbill Dan by PepsiCola Russia will create a powerhouse business in terms of its scale and its growing brand portfolio. So what can Russia offer the investor? It comes down, says some, to its brain power. Kirill again. We looked at China's top 50 brands. But come on, is Russia anywhere there? Is it anywhere near building brands, image, competing with the West? Oh, right, quite so. Um, Wim Bildan, that was bought outright by PepsiCo as very strong brands. So strong that Pepsi paid more for Wimbledon uh, in terms of price-to-earnings ratio that Pepsi is worth itself. And if we then are to look to the future, people talk about the rise of, of China, India and the BRIC economies. What's Russia got to do to break through in that race? Uh, right. Well, um, if Russian state um, is going to be genuine about the second round of privatization. Uh, the whole thing there will be much better. Where would you see the rise in the BRIC economies coming from? People have discounted India, that huge momentum behind China, its GDP figures this week, its meeting with President Ho and, and President Obama. People have talked about Brazil too. Who would you back? Well, I would um, probably, in some respects, would back China in terms of volumes of exports. I would back Brazil in terms of growth. And I would back Russia in terms of brain power. If the world economies stand at the crossroads of this third industrial revolution, the likes of which we've not seen for 200 years, the unveiling of WPP's brand said top 50 most valuable Chinese brands at the CBAM WPP Distinguished Lecture and Panel wasn't just a wake-up call to Western businesses it gave them firm knowledge on which to build their brand success in these emerging markets in the future. Seeing this moment in history as a challenge that offers real opportunities is paramount. Dr Christos Patelis, David Roth and Professor Peter Williamson again on the opportunities it now offers all of us, workers, consumers, investors, businesses and governments. I do think we need to explore further these issues, and as I mentioned in my talk, on the 8th of July we are going to have the next big event on Beyond Bricks, where we are going to explore some of these issues further, and at the same time we are also trying to see new sources of dynamism in the global economy and try to address broader issues. That was a relatively shorter event, and we, we focused mainly at the corporate level and uh, at the level of the brands. And as I keep emphasizing, what is good at the corporate level need not be good necessarily at the national level, and what is good at the national level need not necessarily be good at the global level. So addressing these agency issues, what we call in economics between corporate, public, and supranational levels are very big issues that we need to explore further, and we plan to do this in the next symposium. I think we should feel happy that... Um, uh, citizens of countries like China and Brazil and India 
will have the capacity to improve their living standards uh, and uh, uh, be able to fulfil the ambitions that they have for themselves and their families. Um, you know, I think it's uh, uh, not right of us to look at just the growth that we have in our own domestic marketplaces at the expense of the lives of many other people uh, around the world. So um, I think that comes at a, at a cost to us, but I don't believe looking at the future, that it necessarily will come at a cost to the declining living standards uh, of uh, more uh, established marketplaces. It's going to be different, um, but there's no reason to assume that uh, it's going to be uh, at the expense uh, of uh, living standards in more developed markets. A thing that is nice in all of these uh, high-growth countries is the sort of can-do attitude and willingness to... Uh, find ways forward and not to see uh, obstacles insurmountable. And uh, sometimes, you know, we've become uh, a very cynical and uh, uh, sort of downbeat in the West, especially after financial crisis. And uh, that doesn't actually help you move forward compared to economies where most people have a very positive outlook on the future. Challenges are opportunities. That's history in the making.